Uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to uh, Lincoln College for the eighth and final Lincoln Leeds seminar in the 2018 series. My name is Paul Stevens, and I'm reading for a DPhil in English here at Lincoln. Um, I'm also the MCR academic representative, uh, whose role it's been this year to convene the current seminar series. Uh, before I introduce our theme and our speakers, uh, I just want us to acknowledge that today is, of course, International Women's Day. Uh, so we send out solidarity to women in Britain and around the world uh, who are challenging all forms of gender inequality. Okay, so tonight we'll be discussing the question, what are the limits of the law? Um, the limits of the law are often discussed uh, in ethical terms, in On Liberty from 1859, John Stuart Mill claims that, quote, the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilised community against their will is to prevent harm to others, end quote. Uh, this idea would become known as the harm principle, and it remains central to any sort of legislative discussion uh, of the role of the scope of the law. However, the efficacy of the legal system in any one state is limited in numerous ways, uh, from challenges introduced by digital technology and the internet uh, to the democratic demands of populist politics. Uh, the law must therefore be recognised as having both abstract limits and material limitations whose evolving boundaries require constant appraisal. Uh, and so for this reason, uh, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you this evening our three panellists, who each bring distinct professional and academic expertise to bear on this complex question. Our first panellist tonight is Dr. Barbara Havelkova. Uh, Dr. Havelkova is a Shaw Foundation Fellow in Law here at Lincoln College and specialises in gender legal studies and constitutional and EU law. Before coming to Lincoln, Dr. Havelkova trained at the Legal Service of the European Commission and at the Court of Justice of the European Union and currently serves as advisor to the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic on issues of gender and law. Her recent book, Gender Equality in Law, Uncovering the Legacies of Czech State Socialism, was published by Hart Bloomsbury in 2017. Our second panellist tonight is Shabana Mahmoud. Shabana is the Labour Party Member of Parliament for Birmingham Ladywood, a position that she's held since the 2010 general election. After completing a degree in law at Lincoln, Shabana trained at the Inns of Court School of Law to become a practising barrister. And since entering Parliament in 2010, she's held numerous key posts, I was very impressed, um, including Shadow Home Affairs Minister, Shadow Business Minister, and uh, has sat on the Shadow Treasury team. Uh, since 2015, uh, she has served as Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, was elected to the PLP's National Executive Committee, uh, and sat on the International Trade Select Committee. Uh, Shivana is currently the chair of the PLP's Justice Group and a member of the Reform Working Group for Bain Representation. Our third panellist tonight is Lucas Wagner. Lucas, Lucas is reading for an MSc in Law and Finance as a scholar of the German Academic Exchange Service. He is a German qualified lawyer and studied law and comparative law at the universities of Munich, Mainz and Rhone Torvagata. Uh, he has worked for Clifford Chance in Frankfurt and the European Commission in Brussels and was also a research and teaching assistant at Mainz. 
He is currently uh, the president of the Oxford FinTech and Smart Law Society as well. So um, I think together the panellists have got this one covered, basically. <laughs> so we've got a very impressive uh, set of panellists this evening. Um, okay, without further ado, um, please welcome our first speaker this evening, Dr. Barbara Pavakova. So in my 15 minutes as the first speaker, I'll first do a little bit of an introduction to what we talk about when we talk about limits of the law uh, from legal theory, mainly distinguishing between practical limits and principled limits. And I'll then apply it to an area which is both dear to my heart and very topical because it's International Women's Day, to the question of hypothetic. So what do we talk about when we talk about limits of the law? The first thing that comes to mind is practical limits, and it has to do with the relationship between aims and means. Uh, to give you a probably a very familiar example, if you want less alcohol to be drunk because you're aware of all kinds of risks connected to alcohol, from uh, problems of health to the person who drinks alcohol, alcoholism to violence and, and other social knock-on effects that alcohol produces in society, you have your aim. Now the question is, how do you go about achieving that? You can completely prohibit the sale of alcohol, as the US has done in early 20th century, um, but you have some dangers connected to that. It might be driven underground, uh, the state stops collecting taxes. With, because it goes underground, you have a growth of criminal activity you otherwise would not have connected with the sale of alcohol, and you have new kinds of violence, again, perhaps connected with the criminal smuggling and sale of alcohol. You can tax it. How high do you tax it? If you tax it too high, perhaps, that incentivizes smuggling again. It incentivizes, perhaps, home production, which can lead to further, more serious health causes like the production of methanol, rather than ethanol, etc. You can limit sale, adopting age limits, place of sale limits. Sweden, for example, only has a state monopoly shops that sell alcohol. Uh, you can have time limits, no sale on Sunday, again, something that Nordic countries often adopt or you can close pubs at 11 a.m. But again, there are risks to all of this. In the U.S., where most, in, in most states, alcohol is only sold to people over 21, you can have a lot of private drinking, which can lead to binge drinking. The same actually goes for pubs closing at 11 a.m. People try to get as much alcohol in as they can, towns closing time, and that can lead to different kinds of health risks. So the questions we are facing with practical limits of the law is basically, are the means chosen effective? Are the aims going to materialize at all? And or, will there be some unintended consequences, counterproductive effects uh, that might actually even outweigh the benefits of any given regulation? So, in a sense, what we're asking here is, has law overreached? Has it found the limit? And there are some problems inherent in the law that then have these practical consequences. First, tools of the law are blunt. Um, they might not work, they might produce unintended effects. Um, Stanford in Encyclopedia has a very good entry on the limits of the law, and they got me thinking about two further uh, problems of law. One is psychology, that sometimes forbidden fruit is, is made more attractive, so if the law prohibits a certain type of behavior, you know, people are perverse sometimes and they start behaving in uh, un unexpected ways. 
But you also have a mixture, what's called a mixture problem, that sometimes things that you want can be very closely intertwined with things that you don't want, <laughs> and the law is not always capable of separating those. Law also is actually, it has this quite a bit of inertia, it's quite difficult to amend, and so it might not respond quickly enough to changing circumstances, and I expect Lucas to be the one talking about this in particular. Um, finally, there are sort of extra legal considerations. You might find the right tools, but they just might be too expensive. And in sort of competition for limited, finite resources of the state, you might just end up saying, well, we could perhaps do this, but we can't justify uh, doing this because it's too expensive. The other difficulty, of course, and this is already getting to the area of principle limits, is the question of when can you even justify state coercion? State, of course, has the monopoly on violence. So it is capable of coercing us, but we also probably have to ask the question, beyond if we decide to coerce, is it ineffective? The question, the principled question, when is it legitimate to coerce? Is it going to be based on facts, on moral decisions by the state, or on majority opinion in a democracy? Think of something like gun control as, again, again a familiar uh, controversial topic. The facts and reasoned moral arguments seem to be on the side of gun control. And yet, there is huge disagreement, in, I'm talking again about the US society, on whether to adopt uh, more restrictive gun laws or not. I mean, in the US, the particular interesting, particularly interesting thing is that some measures even do get popular support, but don't have political support, which shows a failure of democracy, but that's perhaps a different topic. So, so analytical jurisprudence in particular has long discussed how to justify, how to identify the moral grounds on which state can limit uh, people's behavior. And here comes what uh, Paul initially mentioned, John Stuart Mill's harm principle, probably one of the most fundamental here, and actually a lot of the work done ever since is really refining or redefining the harm principle uh, rather than coming up with dramatically uh, different takes on this. Okay, so how does this apply now uh, to equal pay? So this is mostly a discussion of practical limits. And I think the point I'm trying to, well, to try to make is that I feel that the limits are often only apparent ones. So a certain type of law might be unable to address a problem, but if you you know, open your mind and look beyond what might be the traditional tools you might actually encounter things which will, will help achieve what, whatever the aim, state of aim is. We all know about the gender pay gap or wage gap. It is the difference between the average hourly wage between men and women. In the UK it's currently 18.4% and it's changing very, very, very slowly. Of course that number does not necessarily tell you what is the result of direct discriminatory behaviour in, in the sphere of remuneration. Some of it was ascribable to other discrimination in treatment, like lack of career opportunities for women, it can be even discrimination in hiring. And some of it is again probably the fault of wider societal setup, like the fact that the economy is gendered, or that you're in a socio-culturally gendered world where typically women's work can be valued less, or work when done by women's values. So what legal tools do we have to address this problem? Uh, the UK actually got on the topic relatively early. In, in 1970, an Equal Pay Act was adopted. Um, and it was already quite progressive in that it didn't only speak about 
equal work, but a work of equal value. Right? So it recognized the need to be able to compare beyond just the same type of position. But it largely still used uh, an individualized tool of sort of individual litigation, for example, and, and in a sense direct discrimination. These individualized tools, of course, are important because people are insulted, they're grieved, uh, they've lost faith, uh, and they want to do something about it. At the same time, even if you get remedy, it's only going to benefit that one person. But even this individual enforcement, despite its inherent limits, can be done worse or better. For example, one insight into discrimination cases that was taken over the board quite quickly was that there is a huge information asymmetry between the employer and the employee. And so it's going to be very hard for the claimant employee to present all the facts from which you can derive a case of discrimination in, in remuneration. So, so a legal tool, which is the shift of burden of proof, was adopted. So relatively early on in litigation, it's the employer who has to produce the facts and has to produce explanations for why a gap exists between a man and a woman. And that has helped litigation quite a bit. There are institutional tools you can use or think about. Um, the potential cost can be, of litigation can be very discouraging. And, you know, maybe for, for cases like this, you will need to address the question of fees, for, which for the long time in the UK was actually done relatively cleverly and only recently that the Conservative government have, have quite uh, discouraging fees been reintroduced for cases before the employment tribunals, which mean that a lot of litigants will now think twice about bringing claims. You can also think about aiding legal representation when people will have trouble finding somebody to, to stand up for them to represent them. You can give that right to unions, you can give it to a specialized body like the equality body. You can allow NGOs to get involved in cases. So how to make wider structural changes then, beyond just fixing small things about litigation? So the interesting thing is, and I mean this might be a bit too technical for those of, of you in the audience who are not lawyers, but there's still a lot of doctrinal tools in a sense, so tools inherent to, or inside the law that, that one can use. One is allowing for a hypothetical comparator. So if you're trying to obviously have an equal paper and you'll have to find somebody who's doing equal work or work of equal value and then say, well, they're doing the same work but I'm getting less money. But in a highly feminized sector of the economy, in a highly feminized employer, you might actually have trouble finding somebody like that doing, you know, they might be, there might be somebody doing less valuable work getting more money. That's actually very typical, right? Or you might have somebody doing just slightly more qualified work getting disproportionately more money. So just allowing that kind of tool, so if, if there was a man in this position, would they actually be getting the same amount as I am? That can be a helpful tool. You can also play around with defining the employer and the employee. One of the problems that we've had recently with enforcement of equal pay is that there has been much outsourcing, especially from public employers. And then once you're, you know, you're a cleaner, you're a porter, but you're no longer employed by your school. You're employed by an agency that then hires you back. And that's obviously a very easy way to evade uh, equal protection laws unless you bring this in and unless you, you decide to cover exactly such a situation. Um, there are other doctrinal tools like using indirect discrimination, which is a, a doctrine that allows for capturing not just um, behaviors which use sex as the distinguishing factor, but use a, a seemingly neutral criteria which disproportionately impacts one sex. Typically, part-timers, <coughs> right, were mostly women. So if you, if you set out a condition for part-timers, which are even sort of pro-rata, not equal 
to full-time race, you're effectively, indirectly uh, impacting a group based on sex. And finally, going even wider, one can think about uh, tools like positive or affirmative action. Uh, so the conscious giving of particular consideration or preference, if you want, to female, female candidates to remedy the lack of women in higher paid positions uh, and, career, and, and, and discrimination and, and obstacles in career progression. But there are wider questions of, of law and policy, if you want. Many of them would have to do with measures that uh, promote reconciliation of work and family life. And again, some of them are legal tools. Some of them are going to be more financially distributed. And, and again, beyond that, there are procedural and institutional tools, uh, such as really having strong public enforcement, through labor inspectorates, for example, uh, or creating a new obligation of transparency. Very often, the problem of equal pay is people don't know how much they're actually being paid, that they might be being paid less than their colleagues. And employers would even put clauses in employment contracts which say you're not allowed to speak about your pay. Well, you know, the law can make those invalid, ex ante. But it can also even proactively ask employers um, to collect data and publish data about how they're doing in terms of gender wage gap. That's a, a hugely motivating factor. Switzerland, for example, has introduced a software that checks this and does a gender wage audit. And you either get certified as fulfilling a particular benchmark or not. And if you don't, you're not going to be considered for public procurement. So you're not going to be considered for government contracts. So to conclude, we sometimes need to shift, I think, from seeing law as command to what I would call clever law in this sense, which understands economic and reputational incentives of employers or of businesses. But the important thing, and often from economists, you, you know, you hear we want to keep law out of it, etc. But I, I think law needs to be kept in. Um, Self-regulation doesn't always work. Just recommending to companies that they need to be transparent about this is not, has, has been proven not to work. So we still do need law. There's a regulatory lesson here, I think, which is open-mindedness about the wide range of tools that one actually has at one's disposal. And there's also this one really interesting point, which was recently raised by a colleague of mine, David Oppenheimer, who looked at the US enforcement. And he observed that um, when their Civil Rights Act was being adopted, people who wanted to prevent it from being effective uh, decided that uh, basically one group of enforcement which, which then became uh, private enforcement, which then became basically a savior of the entire area. Uh, and he said he, he, he basically pleaded for redundancy. He said, sometimes you need multiplicity of tools, which seem to actually overlap. Um, because in a certain uh, points in time, one might be more useful than the other. When your president, such as the case of Trump, defends public agencies and their enforcement, you will need private enforcement through courts and vice versa sometimes. Um, and finally, there is a methodological tool for those of you in the room who are lawyers, which is to say I think it's really useful for us not to just think internally about law and its doctrinal tools, but more widely about law and policy and, and adopt socio-legal tools which look at how law works in practice to actually assess what law is doing and where are its real limits. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barbara. I thought that was an absolutely fascinating talk. I, um, I, I really haven't personally considered the sort of complexity of doctrinal, social, methodological tools that the law has at its disposal. So thank you for clarifying that for us.
Um, okay, I'd like to introduce our second speaker now, Shabana Mahmood. Thank you very much. Um, can I say, as a former Lincoln uh, alumna, it's a, an absolute pleasure to be back. Um, and I'm very pleased that I'm talking law here at Lincoln, but not exper experiencing an essay crisis whilst I'm doing it. So uh, <laughs> that's a, a massive plus and a win. Um, so obviously, I was a student of the law at this very uh, august uh, institution, and then I was a practitioner of the law. And these days, as a politician, um, I'm a lawmaker, or because I'm an opposition politician, I'm usually trying to stop the Tory government from making law that I uh, disagree with. Um, so I thought that I would talk about my perspective, not as somebody who's been a student and a practitioner, but as a politician, um, trying to do my job um, uh, and navigating this space between policy, uh, the law, and politics, uh, which um, is messy. It's full of compromise, it's full of quirks and things that happen because of what can be passed or what we feel at any one moment in our history is going to be acceptable to as broad as a coalition of the public as it's possible uh, to get away with. So at the sharp end, at the lawmaking end, things seem and look very different to how I remember things looked when I was a student and coming at it from a more sort of philosophical or ethical consideration of what the limits of the law uh, might be. We don't often talk about the harm principle, for example, when we're having uh, parliamentary uh, debates. Um, uh, maybe our debates aren't all the poorer for it, but um, uh, that's not one of the considerations that usually makes it to the top. Um, of the agenda. So, you know, from a political perspective, if I'm thinking about my constituents and the law and what it means to them, usually, uh, you know, in retail politics, you're thinking of the law as the instrument by which you punish people for doing things that we as a society have decided we don't want uh, other people to be allowed to do. Um, Really, the bread and butter, actually, for most politicians is less on making things a crime these days, but more on setting regulations, setting minimum standards, whether that's actually in the um, arena of employment law or health and safety regulations, there's a whole panoply of work that we do, uh, which isn't terribly sexy, doesn't bring into um, question big questions about you know, human rights or the the coercive power of the state, but are literally just about saying to particular industries that if you want to mine this particular mineral, this is what you have to do, or if you want to uh, employ people, these are the things that you have to do to make sure you look after your employees properly. And of course, that area of law isn't just made here in Britain, uh, but actually a lot of that law comes from uh, of the European Union, which uh, uh, is uh, something that is in flux uh, at the moment. But um, uh, a lot of a lot of what, what our bread and butter experience experience of law um, from a sort of political perspective is, is, is in those um, areas. And one thing though I wanted to consider um, in talking to all of you this evening is um, that bit where we do very political lawmaking. Um, and this is where political parties want to enshrine something as in law as a statement of intent as to where their politics have arrived at rather than necessarily thinking whether that particular area needs law in order to make it happen. And I think one of the best examples of that, quite salient given what's been happening in the international aid sector recently, is the Labour Party's decision, my party's decision, to enshrine the 0.7% of GDP spend target in law. Um, so this is where we said, 
that we would pass a law, we did pass a law, to say we would always spend 0.7% of our nation's GDP on international aid spending. Now, for us as a party, that is our values in action, because we believe not just in having a compassionate, um, democratic, socialist attitude to our own population, but also trying to do right by the poorest citizens in the world. Uh, it was in the wake of campaigns around the Jubilee Debt Campaign, and so it came as part of a, a history and a tradition of looking at the rights and responsibilities that wealthier nations have against uh, developing uh, countries, in particular where also some of those nations you know, had those countries as part of their empires and uh, have probably left them in some of the state that they find themselves in today. So it was in, a, it was in a tradition of actually showing responsibility towards citizens that aren't just our own national citizens, but citizens uh, of the rest of the world. Um, was it something that needed a law, though, to make it happen? Because we were a Labour government, we had a very large majority, the Tories could never have stopped us from spending 0.7% of our GDP uh, on aid spending at any point. We always had the votes, and Labour MPs, I can guarantee, would never vote against doing that. So that was always, as a policy, something we would achieve with that law. But the real benefit of putting it into the law was now, if the Tories ever want to change it, they actually have to actively make a decision to walk through the lobbies of the House of Commons and say, no, we're going to not spend 0.7% of GDP uh, on international aid spending. There are some that would very much like to do that, um, but they would struggle to get the votes in the Commons. So it's a way of implementing political and policy change uh, through using the law, knowing that actually once you've enshrined something in law, getting it out of the law's clutches is going to be very difficult, not from a legal perspective, but from a pure political perspective of do you have the votes in the Commons to make it happen? How much tolerance will Tory MPs have for the millions of emails they get from their constituents saying, please don't do this terrible thing, we have a responsibility to the world's poorest as well as to our own nations? Probably most MPs wouldn't have a high threshold for that because nobody wants to look like the bad guy that's not going to stand with the world's poorest. And therefore, that policy is then perpetuated not just by a Labour government, by, but by people from across the political uh, spectrum. Um, as a former lawyer, though, you know, the question in my mind still remains, well, actually, is the law the best way always of achieving that? Um, it might enshrine and make it difficult in political terms, but you know, who suffers? Who, who pays the price? Who goes to prison or pays the fine when we don't spend 0.7% of GDP on international aid? Uh, and what is, what is international aid? Because it's not really well defined in the law. Um, and actually, uh, you've had a number of politicians who have tried to use that money for things that most of us probably wouldn't consider to be the core business of international aid or have used it to try and support political causes in other, in other countries um, that might fit our geopolitical uh, objectives, but are not necessarily core international aid spending. So the debate then moves on to, well, what does aid spending actually look like? And on that, there isn't much agreement, and so governments always find ways to have enough given the system uh, to be able to do what they want, which is, which is actually quite a substantial sum of money. I think in the last year, 0.7% of our GDP equates to £13.8 billion. Pounds. Uh, if you're representing you know, a city like mine, uh, that's seen 700 million quid's worth of money taken out of its budget, 13 billion is a very large sum of money. So even if you support the target and support the spending, that puts into context that we're talking about uh, a sum of money that could improve and change lives here, 
Um, and it, you know, you'd have to be politically naive to think that, that any government of any day wouldn't use that money to pursue geopolitical ends as opposed to just wanting to make uh, help the poorest um, in the world. Um, in terms of enshrining things in law, that our step on the 0.7% uh, of GDP spend on international aid, sort of in that um, final phase of the Labour Party in government, uh, pre-2010, uh, sort of set off a whole train of campaigning around people wanting to enshrine other bits of policy uh, into law, um, uh, some of which I think, you know, could be successful, some less so. I'm not sure that this is necessarily the way that politics should go, because it often means that politicians stop making the case for the thing they believe in as a policy and simply blame the law and saying, oh, we have to do this thing that you think is terrible, we think is terrible, but the law says we have to do it. So the law then becomes something you hide behind for difficult political choices because you don't want to have a hard conversation with the public, which, uh, you know, I don't think is the way that politics or politicians should operate. Um, and the populist moment that we're experiencing across the world and here in this country, I think, is in large part due to a failure of politics because the politicians have abdicated responsibility for making arguments for what they believe and what they think should happen and have sought to blame outside institutions, whether that's the law, whether that's Europe or others, uh, to kind of take the heat for them, which again, I don't believe is the way we should operate. I think it causes many terrible things, some of which we're experiencing now. It's not a good road uh, for us to go down. I want to pick up on this theme of even when you pass law, what happens in terms of enforcement? Because the other thing that I see as a politician is very much at the enforcement end. There's lots of things for which there is good legislation, um, but your day-to-day -day experience will probably tell you that it's not, it's, it's, it's not just about passing the law, it's about having the resources to then enforce it. Uh, so in my constituency, we have a problem with car cruising. Um, so this is where uh, young, usually men, uh, get soup up their cars with all sorts of gadgets and things which I don't understand, and it looks like they're trying to live their fast and furious dream down the dual carriageways of Birmingham. Uh, there is legal uh, capacity for the, uh, for the council, Birmingham City Council, to get an order to stop that kind of car cruising from happening. So the law is there, and the council, working with the police, can bring action against anybody they catch in the act. Do they have the money to spend most evenings sitting on the dual carriageways of Birmingham trying to catch boy racers? No, they don't. So my constituents will continually complain, you must do something. Uh, and I live in my patch and I see these people and they give me a poor night's sleep as well, so I want to do something too. I am a lawmaker, the law is there, but of course the money is not there in order to help enforce it. Um, and car cruising, uh, unless somebody unless there's an accident and something terrible happens, with the best thing in the world, there's probably always going to be a lower order of priority than a council running its schools, paying its staff, running the fleet and waste management service. You know, all of those things will always be more bread and butter, more important than dealing with some boy races on a dual carriageway. So enforcement um, is a thing that as a politician, uh, this is where you can have all the laws you want, but unless you've got the money behind you to be able to enforce them, bring cases, take people to court, find them lots of money, nothing changes. Um, it's true also for areas of national policy, so the national minimum wage, one of the Labour government's great achievements, 
uh, really, I think, you know, um, well judged by history as a significant achievement, but going forward, we will always look back on that as one of the things that could have only happened in that moment with a Labour government. Um, but of course, if there's no enforcement capacity across the different agencies that can enforce the national minimum wage, then, you know, the law's great, but what, what, what else has actually uh, changed? Um, and, and so that brings me on to my next point about culture change, because the law can sort of set the tone and say, we as a society think this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. And we have made a choice as a society about what we will put into our law. Um, but unless it's backed up by a culture change as well, then it doesn't work. So yes, we can get orders against boy races on a dual carriageway in Birmingham, but unless we educate those same young uh, men not to get into their cars and drive dangerously and be a nuisance, and we're never going to really succeed. Um, and nor, I think, has some of the legal changes we've seen have made really good, significant culture change. Um, I haven't uh, been back to Oxford actually since I graduated, so it's been a long time since I've been here, but when I was a student here, you know, if I was going down the mitre with my friends or in Deep Hall, uh, I would smell of cigarettes. Um, but banning smoking in public places actually has been a really significant uh, achievement. Um, I'm not sure how we've done on enforcement particularly, but actually putting that into law has brought about a culture change. Now, you know, if I get a waft of somebody else's cigarette, I really notice it because it's so unusual. We have health for healthcare and uh, health position of workers. Um, in pubs and in other social places, uh, but we've also made a, an, an impact on uh, our, us as a society um, because fewer people now smoke and more people are trying to give it up and more people get support and resources for helping to give up smoking. Uh, so that's, I think, a really positive culture change. Something else that I think is in the offering is around plastics, plastic bags. When the Welsh Labour government um, a few years ago legislated against uh, carrier bags and charging the uh, a 5p for a carrier bag, everyone thought they were completely nuts and now of course we're doing it um, across the UK and it's just become a part of how we work as a society. Um, I don't know how many people are going to pay a big fine or go to prison for not having, for, you know, having a plastic bag, but as a society we now know this is not really the dumb thing. If you want to be a good citizen, you know, you're responsible in your use. Um, of plastic. Another area where I think we could see good change is the salt and sugar content of food. Um, and if, if I'm talking about sort of day-to-day -day practical living things, that's because actually as a politician that's what I'm thinking about, what people eat, how they live, how they interact with one another. And the space for the law is definitely there and it has a role to play, but culture uh, is much more uh, important. I thought I'd just finish on um, some of the things that we see in Parliament these days, because um, we're both a very busy parliament uh, in one respect because of Brexit and all the things that are happening as a result of Brexit, but in a way, we're also not legislating very much. One of the interesting things that people used to say about the new Labour government was we were making too many laws, ridiculous laws, the statute books was filling up with all sorts of things that didn't need to be made uh, law, and now we hardly ever make law. Actually, I mean, in many ways, both the 2015 to 2017 parliament and the 2017 and current parliament is considered a part-time parliament. We haven't made very many laws. We certainly haven't made very many controversial laws. Um, we're just not as busy in the law-making bit of our job. It's much more policy-driven, and it's about government policy, and in particular, these days, Brexit is sucking the energy out of everything everyone's doing anywhere in Westminster. Um, but Brexit does throw up some interesting uh, questions, I think. The government tried to enshrine in law the date 
uh, that we would be out to the European Union, um, which actually they gave up on because they knew they wouldn't have the numbers to do it. It was a mad thing to try and do, but they were trying to do it away what Labour did with a 0.7% of GDP target. They were trying to pass a law so that it would be very difficult to then roll back from something. Um, we have a change to the legislation on the European Withdrawal Bill, Union Withdrawal Bill on having a meaningful vote. But I guarantee there are people working very hard in government trying to not follow that bit of the law. That is an amendment to legislation that's been passed by the House of Commons. It is the law of the land. But I guarantee this government is going to fight tooth and nail to not implement that bit of the law of the land because it doesn't suit their political uh, agenda. And we're going to have a big fight uh, in a few weeks. It's been delayed, but we will have a fight over the customs union because there was a majority in the Commons for saying Britain should remain a member of the customs union when we exit uh, the European Union. And will the government respect that if that is passed as the law of the land that remains to be seen? So politics and law are mixing in a way at the moment, which is unusual because we're having a populist moment. Um, and I don't know yet who's going to win the law or politics. Anyway, thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. That was, again, another absolutely fascinating talk. And thank you for sort of sharing, sharing with us the, what must be quite a complex uh, sort of situation where you're weighing on one hand the ethical and philosophical aspects of the law with the sort of pragmatic politics of trying to enshrine a certain position within law. So thank you for sort of drawing that to our attention. Uh, right, our third and final speaker this evening is Lucas Wagner. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Having me, uh, but to some extent, we will today close the circle that was started with the first session of the series, where it was touched upon the basis of modern day cryptography, and we will talk a bit about, uh, today about the limits of the law when it comes to blockchain technology, which is a technology that is largely based on cryptography as one of the means to achieve what the people behind it are trying to achieve overall. So, yeah, um, you, we will uh, briefly touch upon what different aspects of blockchain technology. First of all, Bitcoin, and then, yeah, Ethereum, and what are called smart contracts. Then we will see what the limits of the law actually are when it comes to these, to these ideas or these concepts. And then we will hopefully have a look at some possible solutions in the future. Yeah, starting with blockchain technology in general. Yeah, most people will think about Bitcoin, isn't that this dodgy internet money which all the criminals are using? <laughs> some of you will have seen some of these headlines here, and yeah, I have to say to some extent that's true. Yes, <laughs> in a recent paper where, and that's only the starting point of the study actually. The starting point here is that they almost 13% of all the volume of Bitcoin transactions are related to illegal activities. But then they use metrics to, to uh, uncover the, the, uh, the hidden part and they come to a number which is around 45% of all transactions that are done on the Bitcoin network, which is to some extent related to illegal activity. Yeah, but that's not the whole picture. There are also charities that run on the Bitcoin network, even though it's in, in size, it's obviously a different different story, but yeah, talking about Bitcoin, that's how it all started, that's the original white paper by a person known as Satoshi Nakamoto, up until now we don't know who, who the individual is, so, but it was an entire group of people that created this, 
But that was how it was started, and I've, I think it's also a good way to start if you want to understand what it is about and yeah, how it how it works in a way that also a lawyer could understand the basics. At the white paper, if you're interested, but yeah, we'll go to the main points. Yeah, the, the basic idea is we have a distributed ledger. That's why the the overarching uh, notion is distributed ledger technology, which is wider than Bitcoin because there are also other technologies that use ledgers that are distributed over a network and not what was the traditional idea to have a central server or a central entity that that um, yeah, records all transactions. But here we have a decentralized distributed ledger that is and this ledger is running on a network of nodes that anyone can join. So anyone, even with this computer here, we could set up a node and join the Bitcoin network and then all the transactions would be stored on this computer as well. And in theory, anyone can join, which is a good thing at least to overcome censorship or also then also another aspect where it's used to, to overcome sanctions, which is also why some governments are now planning to set up their own cryptocurrencies to, to evade sanctions because they could, it's, it's very hard to, to impede transactions on such a decentralized network because you don't have one central point of attack or a central point where you block the, the, the traffic. Then how does this uh, ledger exactly work? The transactions that happen in this network. So, for Bitcoin, it would be it would be people sending Bitcoin to another person. They are stored in blocks, and then they are chained together by cryptography, which is supposed to make them immutable and unforgeable. Even though that's not entirely true, but we'll talk about that a bit later. And these new blocks are then added to the ledger by so-called miners that run a node, which we could do here as well in theory. And they are rewarded for doing so in Bitcoin. It's currently 12.5 Bitcoin, and currently Bitcoin is around $10,000, one Bitcoin. So there's still a lot of money to be made. And there are actually maps <laughs> of the world that compares the electricity costs in a country with the possible reward of doing mining. So you could map out the areas where it's profitable to mine and where it isn't. Yeah, then another idea of this idea of a blockchain as a decentralized entity is that it's supposed to be trustless, which is also not entirely true. But what people mean by trusted is that you don't need to trust your counterparty. However, you still need to trust the miners that chain the, the blocks together, because if they change the transactions before they forge them together, then obviously it's not working because anyone could then change the, the, the events that are supposed to have happened in, in terms of transactions. And the, the wider idea of some of the people at least have started this is this idea to have a denationalized currency and it's a very ideological aspect which can also, a hint of this is this part of the original Genesis block. So the first Bitcoin block that was ever mined that contains this text message there in the Times January 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. So you can <laughs> see it's, it's this idea that of some people not to trust traditional institutions, but to trust put their trust into cryptography. 
even though the, the part of not trusting traditional institutions isn't a very new idea, because already in the 1970s, Hayek had this idea of denationalizing money and having private currencies that compete against each other in the way, in, in their stability. And once it became clear that one currency wasn't stable anymore, people would have had the possibility to switch to other currencies then. But back then, it wasn't really picked up and it wasn't, wouldn't have been possible for probably also to, to realize something from a technical point of view. And that's also still talking about Bitcoin. That's a, a map from last Sunday of all the nodes. So you can see that dispersed more or less around the entire globe. And last Sunday was 11, more than 11,000 computers running the blockchain and participating in this, in this network. Keep keeping up and yeah, trying to mine new blocks of transactions. Then we move over to Ethereum. If you say Bitcoin is blockchain 1.0, then Ethereum would have to be qualified as blockchain 2.0. It's not only a decentralized ledger like Bitcoin, where you would store transactions, but its idea was to have a decentralized platform where you could store basically everything. You could store data, you could also store computer code that are the famous smart contracts there, but you could also, through these smart contracts, you could create your own tokens and thereby basically your own currency, which is what, as, what is in, in this area is known as ICOs, as initial coin offerings. And the idea of the founders of Ethereum was to have, through these possibilities, decentralized applications. So the same way you have different applications on your smartphone, you should have different applications on the blockchain. And whatever someone would want to create, there would be a, the technical means to achieve that through a front end, which could be a web page you would access. And then this web page would talk to a smart contract and thereby achieve something on the blockchain. And another um, characteristic of this Ethereum, as opposed to Bitcoin, is that it's um, that is Turing complete, which means everything you could do on a modern computer, you're also able to do on on this blockchain of Ethereum. Then we move over to smart contracts, which already sounds a bit like law again. It is a concept that's much older than the than the idea of a blockchain. It was introduced by Nick Szabo in 1996. Unfortunately, it's a big misnomer because, as I've already said, it's computer code, computer code, and it's neither smart nor is it a contract in the legal sense. <laughs> Therefore, it would be would make much more sense to call it distributed software instead of smart contract. So it's basically a computer code that someone, the creator, deploys onto the blockchain. That's also where you can clearly see that it's not a contract in the legal sense because you have only one person deploying it, whereas with a contract you have at least two parties that form an agreement. And if this code that is then, this code is then stored on the blockchain is called by someone that wants to use this contract, then this computer code runs on every node of the network. So every miner runs this code, and the outcome of the program is then also added to the blockchain. The same way Bitcoin and gathers all the transactions that have happened in a certain period. But also one big limitation and one reason why I would not call it a smart thing in general is it cannot communicate with resources outside of the blockchain. 
because it only runs in this Ethereum virtual machine, which means that it runs in a safe environment on the computers of the people that run the nodes, and it can't take into account outside information. And that's why I need this concept of an oracle, which would be some entity or some computer outside of the network that would then use information. For instance, if you have a smart contract that deals with financial aspects, it would maybe gather information from Bloomberg or one very traditional um, example is um, having a flight insurance as a smart contract and you would have a computer that gathers data about flight delays and then would push it into the smart contract by calling it. But the problem here is that it goes against the basic concept of having something decentralized because this oracle would, would by definition, because there would need to be one deterministic outcome, it would need to be on one computer at least that's the, the, the basic idea and it would be centralized again and you would have a new way of attacking or of forging or tampering with the outcome of the contract by manipulating the input through the oracle. Yeah, so if a smart contract isn't really a contract, what could you then call it? And the example Zabo himself came up with is basically it's a modern form of a vending machine. You put something onto the blockchain, then someone who wants to use a service or get a good would need to use the contract or the vending machine. And yeah, by using the vending machine, that's the moment where actually a contract in the legal sense would materialize at all. Even though there have been other attempts to, to classify it in a in more traditional legal categories, and that's where the notion of smart legal contracts comes up. And unfortunately, it's not entirely clear what people mean by smart legal contracts. It's an attempt to yeah, reconcile the legal understanding of a contract with this technical idea of a smart contract, which is basically not a contract but computer code. So some people say if you have a traditional legal agreement which makes use of smart contracts code, then that is supposed to be called a smart legal contract, whereas others say every smart contract that is used by parties, even without knowing them beforehand, would be called a smart legal contract because finding a legal agreement would then make the smart contract call code into a legal agreement. Yeah, then we will have a look at the limits of the law. Basically, it's a big clash of concepts. If you're coming from a legal point of view, you have completely different different ideas and also a different understanding of how institutions should work. There's this basic idea of decentralization, of democratizing power, basically, versus the traditional world where you have strong institutions, or also in, in finance where you have central exchanges or services providers. Then another aspect, which is somehow a consequence of that, is that Smart contracts are supposed to be self-enforcing, so you call the contract and then it provides you with a, with a service without having to involve the state in the form of courts or then even criminal prosecution in cases, which classes with the traditional understanding of state-run enforcement. Then you have this very, very broad idea of having something global and denationalized versus versus how people usually contract 
in, in commercial areas, which is they choose a jurisdiction they want to base their contract on, which is something they also despise. And then you have this, this big conflict uh, between dry code, which Sabo defines as code that runs on computers, uh, with wet code, which he calls the law, which runs on lawyers' brains. So something that can't really fit together because dry code needs to be deterministic. It needs to be, if this happens, then that's the outcome. Whereas in wet code or law, we have all these, these clauses that leave uh, large scope for interpretation, like material adverse change. And then some, somehow yeah, related to this, we have the concept of settlement finality which means that once a transaction is concluded on the blockchain, it is final, and you can't reverse it with the traditional remedies we have in law of clearing and also the right to rescind from contracts or to terminate, terminate contracts under certain conditions. And then we have another aspect which doesn't really fit into the law. It's this idea of Zabo that by setting up a smart contract, you could pool your money there, and once the money is gone, there could nothing happen, so you could limit your liability, whereas under the law, if you contract without setting a special legal entity, you, are, you are, have unlimited liability. Yeah, then we will see some cases where it doesn't work, so enforcement was mentioned earlier. So that is the home page of one of these ICOs, namely Jesus Coin, where they created a Jesus Coin. And yeah, everyone can see very clearly that it will be very hard to hold someone of the team reliable for anything that happens with the cheese company. <laughs> and the only thing you can see is basically here these contract addresses, but there's no name of an individual that you can sue. Another ICO actually was the DAO, which was supposed to be a blockchain and smart contract based venture capital fund. Unfortunately, there was a flaw in the, in the smart contract code. So shortly after the, the launch, and one third of all the money that was stolen into this contract was stolen. And yeah, there was a question, well, what should people do about it? And then actually it came to this aspect of self-regulation. There was a vote in the Ethereum community and they concluded then that the transaction should be reversed. But since in theory it's immutable, you can just enter and change something. They had to do what is called as a hard fork. So they had to change the protocol so as to change the, the, the whole chain of transactions. But since not everyone agreed, you have a part of the Ethereum community which now runs under the new rules and where the money is still with the DAO and some people that disagreed and started Ethereum Classic were still the attackers for the money. <laughs> yeah, and then some possible solutions very bri briefly. One idea lawyers come up with is to have a legal wrapper around a smart contract, which in my opinion doesn't really work because the idea is the idea of a vending machine on the blockchain. So people don't know each other before they contract and there's no possibility to agree to this legal wrapper. Then another way is to have an additional governance layer on the blockchain so that yeah, people would have the possibility to reverse transactions in a more institutionalized manner. And another idea is to have still the traditional legal remedies like litigation and arbitration and they will be pushed into the smart contract through the oracles I talked about earlier. Yeah, that's 
basically some ideas how to solve it if you don't want to get rid of the null overall and just just some key, key takeaways summarizing what I was trying to show, but I think there's some room for discussion now. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Lucas. That was an incredibly clear and precise uh, explanation of sort of decentralized networks and uh, blockchain technology. I've, I've learned so much from that. I've been struggling to get my head around some of those ideas before your talk. So thank you for clarifying that. That was fantastic. Uh, well, thank you everyone for coming. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. It's always so frustrating that we bring such three fantastic panellists here. Um, and we, we, we've raised lots of questions, we start a discussion, and then we run out of time. Um, but we unfortunately we have run out of time. So I just want to very quickly thank Barbara and Shibana and Lucas again for bringing their expertise to us this evening. So thank you very much.